You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Tim from The Good GP. The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience to celebrate the 100th episode of our podcast. Christina, Sean and myself would like to thank you, the listeners, for being part of our journey. We'd also like to acknowledge two really important people who've supported and worked on the podcast. Hamish Milne and Lisa Francis are our behind-the-scenes partners at The Good GP. They've worked tirelessly for years to make each episode, and we wouldn't have a podcast without their efforts. This episode covers the topic of self-care. We selected this topic as it highlights something that many GPs do effortlessly as they add value into their consultations. It's something that's worth defining and describing as it's one of the many skills of a good GP and it's not often acknowledged or celebrated. Happy listening. So today's topic I sort of pushed everyone into in lots of ways. It's about self-care because I really feel passionately about self-care and helping patients and people on their journey with self-care. We're going to sort of break it down into three sections. The first part is about how to motivate patients for self-care. The second part is um, helping uh, kids and teenagers with self-care. And the third part is helping um, doctors with self-care. We're just going to take turns to interview each other, basically. So um... I'll crack off first, Tim. Um, So what is self-care and why do you think it's important? Self-care, it's, in lots of ways, I think it's pretty obvious when you say it, it's the process of, of learning to manage problems yourself, um, so health problems in particular. Uh, and generally speaking, I think in, in general practice, we, we think a lot about physical problems, but increasingly I like to talk about managing your own emotional well-being as part of self-care. So in lots of ways, it, in itself, it's pretty obvious, but when you explain self-care to patients, I think that's that helps them connect with what they need to do because, to me, what self-care is about is getting people involved in their own care and showing them that they've got the power to control their own well-being. Uh, and in lots of ways, it's about convincing them to become accountable to themselves with, with looking after themselves. And I think we see a lot of, of things in general practice where we have to change people's behaviours and, and self-care is sort of one of those. So I find I actually really love working with patients in self-care because it's a journey in empowerment and changing you know, that locus of control from you need to see this this doctor or you need to go on this medicine or you need to have this treatment into this is stuff you can do for yourself every day. So if you think about it, where's self-care, you know, where is it important? I think particularly in people who don't prioritise looking after themselves. So um, that's parents, um, parents with young kids in particular. It's carers, people with sort of busy careers and busy in their lives, um, people with emotional health problems often aren't really good at sort of self-care and looking after themselves. So um, they're, the, I think, the areas where being good at, at teaching people about self-care makes a massive difference. Um, and I think that's what a lot of GPs do do really well. And I think it's it's very much, a you know, because it's about prevention, it's about trust and connection with people. I think this is very much the heartland of what GPs should be doing um, in terms of, of our job, basically. Mm. And have you noticed more of it um, becoming an issue with your patients during COVID, Tim? Definitely. I think um, the emotional health needs of people have gone up with COVID. And 
our ability to access, you know, specialists and psychologists and, and other sort of uh, healthcare providers is a little bit difficult with COVID, mm. you know, particularly, you know, for our, our friends on the East Coast in particular, you know, it's, it's very, very tricky. So stuff that you can be doing yourself you know, and sort of finding time to do yourself, I think is, is the, the really important thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So it's easy to say self-care is important, but how do you actually get patients to start taking on these self-care activities? Yeah, look, I think that's that's the important step. Um, a lot of it is really understanding patients and working out what helps habitualise something because you, it doesn't. It's not enough to know what you need to do. You actually have to change and do it. Uh, and that's we all know in general practice. We tell people to say lose weight all the time. And it's really, really hard, basically. Habitualising change is really, really difficult. So some of it is actually just your GP saying, hey, this is really important. You need to prioritise looking after yourself. Um, and I, you know, one way I like thinking about it is there's some things with self-care that we're really good at and we do really reflexively. So you know, by way of example, most of us are really good at preventive dental self-care. Um, we remember to brush our teeth twice a day um, and do that every day almost without fail. And, you know, you, you kind of think, why do we prioritise dental self-care so, you know, heavily, but we won't prioritise emotional health self-care? Um, so it's sort of putting that into a, a context that sort of resonates with patients and actually saying, you know, that's really important. You, you need to sort of prioritise that as part of your wellbeing, basically. Um, so I think having that conversation around, you know, this is what you need and you actually need to, you need to accept that that's important for you. Um, it's as important as any other intervention I'm going to give you. So it's as important as me prescribing your tablets. It's as important as you turning up to your specialist appointment. It's something that you can do. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, to check on you. You need to take responsibility because your journey of staying healthier will sort of depend on that. So that gives patients sort of that sense of control and um, empowerment, which I think really, really helps. Um, and it's a bit of a, a, a sort of paradigm shift. So um, I spend a lot of time, I think, talking about emotional health with people and thinking around, well, what are the emotional health things that you can do to help um, look after look after your emotional health on an everyday basis. So, you know, I like to sort of think around um, exercises like getting to the end of the day and actually saying, you know, at the end of the day, you should be asking yourself, what have you done to help manage your emotional health today? Um, so, you know, try and find something. And, you know, if you don't know what that might be, think about things that help you feel calmer um, or perhaps uh, less likely to overthink things. So for a lot of people, that might be, spending 20 minutes going for a walk, doing meditation or mindfulness exercises, um, listening to music, but making sure that that's kind of a locked in time to actually, and is prioritised as, as a really important intervention. Mm. Um, so they're the ways that I think we can sort of help people in that journey of self-care. Yeah, it's really interesting listening to you talk. I remember speaking to my dad, who, who was a very wise GP in his day, and he said, if motivation was in a tablet, everyone would be on it. And it's a matter of us uh, as GPs sort of motivating our patients to to prioritise their own health and their own self-care. So, yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, I guess that's that's my little spiel about self-care. So we, we'll um, move on to asking Christina about self-care for young people. Um, so, Christina, why is it important to give kids an education about self-care and in particular their emotional health needs? 
Tim, I think childhood and adolescence really is a critical time to start becoming aware of one's physical and emotional needs. It's a time of life that uh, as adults in children's life, as parents or other caregivers, we can help children to lay the foundations for good habits and routines that they're able to carry out through life or carry on throughout their life. Um, and there's no reason that those good habits and routines can't include self-care, that early attainment, I guess, of positive coping mechanisms and early empowerment is, is really a really important life skill. We often think of chronic medical conditions and even mental illness as something that affects adults and older people. But, you know, children, we have to remember, can also experience these, you know, type 1 diabetes, cystic fibrosis on the kind of more severe end, but even, you know, sporting injuries. Um, these are things that affect a lot of children and adolescents. So we want them to be prepared, as prepared and equipped to manage these things as they come up as possible. And even for those children that, you know, and there will be many that aren't going to have a specific medical condition or mental illness per se, they ultimately they are still going to come up against challenges or stresses at some stage. So that proactive empowerment with self-care strategies can really help to build resilience in them, you know, that ability to bounce back and, and navigate those challenges. We see resilience as a bit of a, a buzzword at the moment. Many parents are kind of searching for that thing that's going to make their child resilient. It's not necessarily going to be one thing, but certainly self-care, I think we should be thinking of that and we should be talking to parents and children about it as a tool um, in the toolbox that can help. Yeah, what, what do you find as sort of good activities and resources for kids with regard to self-care and um, perhaps emotional health care? So I might break it up, I guess, into younger children and then I'll talk about older children and adolescents. For younger children, potentially it's never too early to start or they're never too young to start. You might think, well, I'm not going to sit down with my two-month-old and give them a lesson about self-care, but we know that in early years, um, early months of a child's life, the modelling that occurs from a from parents obviously is really important in terms of setting up habits and things that they're going to take forward with them. So I think modeling of self-care is actually really important. And in order for a parent to model self-care, they need to know about it themselves. So I think we as GPs can proactively incorporate education and teaching around self-care in that kind of antenatal and early postnatal period and you touched on that Tim that it, it is a really important time to be thinking about their self-care because it is a time where there's a lot going on and it's quite a can be quite a stressful experience for some parents so that modeling of self-care for parents we need want to be encouraging them to as a family value good nutrition and good sleep and having a good routine around sleep being active and, and valuing movement as as a family we also want to be you know really encouraging that creative outlet for children as well and their ability to kind of let their creative side come out and flare it's important as parents to be uh, modeling positive relationships the relationship that they have from the parent to the child but also between the parents and you know the parents and other adults and really going back to the basics of good quality family time together is important putting the devices down we're tech driven and it's hard to get away from 
work and from um, and from our devices, but being mindful, being present for our children is is a re- is really important. We can't expect for them to want to be present and put the tech down if we can't do that ourselves. That modelling of self-regulation and understanding emotions as well um, is so important in those early few years. So, you know, we know that the terrible twos and tantrums and outbursts really start and that early teaching around that ability to self-regulate and emotional intelligence, you know, what's what's going on to lead to that, what emotional date is is leading to these outbursts and, and how can we help our children to have strategies to manage it. So that I think modeling of all of these things in the early years is really important. In terms of specific activities, encouraging children to be independent with their cares, brushing their teeth, like you mentioned, getting dressed, having breakfast, you know, encouraging that independence in their own cares is important. And, you know, another thing that I sometimes encourage with families is is kind of simple mindfulness things like a gratefulness activity, you know, going around at the dinner table and everyone talking about something that they're grateful for or what they enjoyed about the day. I think something that that is simple and, and that, that families can do together. As we're moving into the kind of space of older children and adolescents you know obviously modeling is still important and that's important throughout life but there may be some need for more targeted interventions and I think in that situation psychoeducation is really important we want the adolescents the teens to understand what is self-care why is it important what can they be doing to incorporate it into their daily routine and how does it actually make a difference why is it that when I don't get enough sleep that um, I'm emotionally labile and therefore it's harder for me to concentrate and it's harder for me to um, have positive relationships and it's um, harder for me to interact with others in a positive way? You know, I think making some of those links can be helpful because some people, especially teens, I think can just have, oh, that sounds really basic and if I get better sleep, things will improve. My physical and mental state will improve. They just think that it's all too simple and all too basic. But I think trying to draw some of those links can be helpful. And there is evidence for the use of e-health in self-care programs that target adolescents. And we know that it's a it's an age group that loves tech. So we may as well embrace it in terms of their health care. So This Way Up has a great teenage, teen strong course that kind of targets worry and low mood for teens headspace has some really good information on there even kids helpline um, website as well and there's some great apps around as well um, like smiling minds which can offer some mindfulness type techniques and programs that's fantastic christina yeah it's talking with teenagers i mean we, we always try and talk to to young kids on their own as much as possible but but helping the parents understand what they can do to help kids along with their journey is really important. And actually, you know, once again, saying that's actually really important for both of you that you do that. It's if you understand how to manage your worry better, you'll actually help your child manage their worry because you can sort of talk through cognitive techniques and so forth with them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I find that's often a good way to motivate mothers is because often they put their needs last and say, well, look, if you do that, 
well, then you're actually, you are impacting on everyone else as well. Yeah, that, that's it, isn't it? I think that's why I mentioned parents as people who really need to be reminded of self-care because your first instinct as a parent, I think, is to look after your kids first and foremost, but every time yeah. to the point where you just deny yourself of any yeah. real sort of sustenance and care. And you almost feel like you, you can feel guilty about doing something for yourself in terms of self-care. I think that was probably one of the really important things I sort of reflected on self-care is if you regard self-care as like a top-end luxury that you do when you've just got time, you're kind of doing it wrong. Yeah. Because um, brushing your teeth isn't a top-end luxury that you do to, you know, as oh, my, my moment of uh, quietness is to brush my teeth. Um, <laughs> you you kind of need to put it with that same degree of sort of priority. Um, and in particular, I think, you know, I always say to people, life comes in phases of stress. And if you're going through a stressful phase, you probably need to be prioritising self-care more. And the paradox is I think when our stress levels go up, we actually tip it out. Like how often do you hear someone say, oh, I used to go riding, but since my, my second child's come along, I've had to stop doing that because we just don't have time to fit it all in. And that's the kind of, that's why it gets sort of deprioritised down um, because your instinct is I, I've got to put myself behind everyone else. And, you know, that just models to kids actually looking after yourself isn't as important as looking after family and so forth. I couldn't agree with you more, Tim. And, um, you know, there's that analogy of the oxygen mask in the flight and that idea that you have to fit your own before you can fit your dependents or someone who's with you that might have a disability. The same goes in terms of our self-care and it's important for parents to realise that, that in order for them to be the best parent they can be, they actually do need to prioritise their self-care. It's no point in them trying to function from a half full tank. Um, if they fill their tank, they're actually much more likely to be able to have positive interactions and positive relationships with, with their children. So, you know, I think sometimes explaining that can sometimes even just be a bit of a light bulb moment and that actually that it's it's good for them, it's good for parents, it's positive for parents to show that they need to take time out. You know, I think that we all need that at times and it's okay for our children to see that. That's actually a positive thing for them to have moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Christian, shall we move on to self-care for doctors? We've got a few doctors in the room. One or two. So, well, yeah, let's start with why is self-care for doctors important, Sean? Well, uh, thanks, Christina. I think that uh, there's a few reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, you, you know, we're evidence-based people, so let's look at the evidence. We have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession, uh, one of the highest rates of mental illness, uh, one of the highest rates of alcohol and um, other drug use amongst white-collar workers. So there's a lot of, lot of work that can be done there. We're less likely to look after ourselves. A bit like we were talking about earlier with the parent scenario, we're busy looking after other people, so our own needs will often get put last. And look, I don't have any evidence for this, but I, I have formed the belief myself that we're because of the selection of uh, medical students to become doctors, you know, we're naturally 
more intelligent than the average person, but we're also a bit more neurotic, a bit more driven. We're, uh, you know, type A personalities that don't deal with uncertainty or failure as well as a lot of other people do. I mean, if you can imagine, you know, some of your, I don't know, some of my truckie patients, you know, if I told them about some of, some of the things that keep me awake at night, they go, mate, what are you worried about? So I think, you know, we do need to do some self-care and do some of the stuff that we tell, you know, tell our patients to do. We, you know, we do on top of this predisposition, we do have high stress jobs. We're doing, you know, it is literally life and death some of the time, plus all the other stresses that, that other people have to deal with. Emotional care is often a blind spot for doctors. We're, we're focused on the physical, we're focused on the achievement, we're focused on um, looking after other people, but we often don't think about, you know, what, what's our emotional well-being doing? Am I checking in with myself? Am I checking in with those around me? And, you know, am I looking after my emotional self, self-care? So I guess, Christina, that's why I think it's important and it's something that we constantly need to be aware of. It's do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> We're good at dishing yeah. out advice, but not necessarily um, at taking it. So what do you think then are the challenges of managing doctors and getting them to self-care for themselves? Well, I think you know, in the doctors that I've looked after, there's a lot of self-referral going on. And, you know, when there's a medical issue that pops up that normally would bring a non-medical patient in to see you, or they need a prescription, a simple script, or they need, there's no such thing as a simple script. There's no such thing as a simple cutting a mole off. Um, there's always those preventative health stuff that you do. And I think getting, getting doctors as patients to actually make time for that preventative health stuff and to take it seriously can be a real challenge. And that, that's one of the things I've found. And just getting also the, the feeling of becoming a patient. It's interesting where I've worked. So where I used to work out in outer metro Perth, there was a lot of retired doctors. And so they'd only start seeing me reluctantly when they could no longer prescribe for themselves. I mean, writing the scripts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. And so uh, they found it really challenging to come and see this person who was 30, 40 years younger than them um, and start to get some preventative health when they never had to do it their whole career. Um, now I've moved to inner, inner metro Perth and it's a very different cohort of doctors. Um, and I find the younger generation are, are better with this. So, you know, I have orthopedic registrar or, you know, ophthalmology ICU registrar or junior consultant or whatever, and they're, they're a lot more comfortable with it. And I think the education and the talks like this around self-care um, in medical school and, and in some of the training programs is starting to pay dividends. And I think people are starting to see that it, it is actually important. And we have to remember there are certain periods. It's not like all doctors uh, have equal needs all of the time. I mean, you know, final year medical students. Interns. You know, yeah. Interns. Yeah. Registrars before exams. Exactly. All these sort of classically stressful periods, plus the usual stressful periods in life. So, um, yeah, so those, Christina, I think are the, the challenges as I see it. Yeah, really good points. I also now have a small inner city practice where I look after a lot of, of doctors. And it's funny, like, we often have a 
have a doctor in and he'll come and have a chat and we'll go through the problems. I'll say, well, what do you think you need to do? And universally, doctors will say, oh, I think I need to lose a little bit of weight. They're quite comfortable saying, oh, I need to do some physical things. But they never sort of talk about how, they don't want to talk about how stressful their job is um, and what they're doing to sort of manage their stress and emotional health um, as a priority. And I'd sort of often say to people, you know, we're, as doctors, we're really good at managing a plan around our career. Like most people know where they want to work, what they want to be doing. They've got a plan for five years and 10 years. We're pretty good at managing things like finances and and stuff like that, managing family, but we're not good at actually having a plan to manage our emotional health. And sort of saying, well, what are you doing to invest in your emotional health? What are the things that actually will help you? Because think about it, you work in a really stressful job and it's permanently stressful. Your job's often life or death. Um, you have things that you need to worry about. And I do genuinely agree, doctors have to have a higher level of worry than the average person because mm-hmm. that's what makes us good at our job. We, we check meticulously and we, we sort of think about all the possibilities. So you've got a job that's constantly making you worry. You're doing it a lot and, you know, you're living with high levels of stress. You need a plan to help manage that, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so talking to doctors around, not just saying it's something I do just you know, as a casual thing, but I've got a long-term plan. I've got a daily plan to help manage my emotional health. Yeah, I think that's important. And um, it's important just to sometimes go back to the basics when you've got another doctor in front of you, because there can be that tendency to kind of skip over the basics when it's another doctor, because you kind of think, you know, oh, they they know that, they, um, they've heard it all before, you know, but sometimes you just, you need to hear it from your, your regular GP, from that person that, that you trust, yeah, you might have sat in a lecture and heard someone go on about self-care or, you know, the importance of looking out after yourself. And But actually having that trusted GP in front of you, kind of putting it into the personal context of your life situation, you know, I think is really important. And I think also it's important that when a doctor starts seeing you, the laying the ground rules at that first visit, I can't emphasise that enough because once you, you sort of get off on the wrong foot and then it's hard to bring it back, the approach that I have whenever I'm meeting a doctor as a patient for the first time, I always say, now, look, I'm sorry if it feels like I'm, you know, going over stuff you already know or if it sounds, you know, really basic, but I talk to doctors like I would talk to an educated non-medical person. Um, and, you know, particularly when you have a doctor who's not a GP and you're talking about something outside of their specialty area, you really should assume that their knowledge is is at that sort of level yeah. because otherwise you can, you can absolutely miss things. Yeah, I agree. I think that is a, a really important thing to, you know, specialists get very focused on their niches and often are very blind to sort of mm. the broader world of medicine that we're involved in every day. So assuming that they know stuff is often a big mistake and just mm. taking the time to explain things so is really important. Well, that's been a really great discussion, Christina and Sean. Thanks so much for that. This is just now the chance where we might go to the audience and just ask if they have any thoughts or questions. Does anyone want to ask a question or, or make a comment? Cue the silence. <laughs> go ahead, Corey. Um, Christina, I really like your point around the importance of early childhood and the impacts on children at that stage. You know, I think um, the sorts of patients that you're referring to sound very insightful and 
loving end. I guess I'm curious, how do you intervene when you have a parent that doesn't have the insight into their own um, way that they're imprinting on their children? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm taking a step back and not trying to make it about what they're doing to their child. And, you know, this is a really tricky area because so much of parenthood is guilt laden um, and, you know, a lot of burden put onto parents. They're not doing this right. They're not doing that right. I've just talked a whole lot about modeling. And then so a parent listens to that and goes, gosh, I didn't I didn't model that, you know, was that my fault? Did I make them into a bad person? Is that why they're still having tantrums at six? Because, you know, I didn't instill good emotional intelligence into them. So I think the last thing we want as GPs is to alienate our patients, especially parents, sometimes taking the focus away from this is what you're doing that's harmful to your child and just making it more about empowerment of the adult themselves and behavior change in the adult, you know, and we can go back to the basics of motivational interviewing and it's not nothing to do with their children. It's just about, about them. Self-care would be really something that could be really important for you. I think having some um, time away from your device or, you know, whatever you want to target and then utilizing those motivational interviewing skills, you know, even around motivational scaling, you know, I want to scale of one to 10. How likely do you think at the moment you are to, to make a change in that facet of your life? And okay, a three, great. Well, why is it a three and not a one, you know, find your buy-in and then what can we do to get you from a three to a six? And it's really working on the parent themselves rather than thinking about the direct input on the child so that by proxy we hope that that's actually going to be positive for the child yeah i agree i think it's easy to think about it as an endpoint rather than just a permanent journey that you're on and and every journey starts with a a small step and some people are only ready for a small step of behavior change so it's really for me trying to find something positive about oh this is just a small step you can try today uh, and that's the, the exercise I really like, just the daily reflection exercise. What have I done today to work on that? I think that's a, a nice thing that people can relate to um, and, and can try. You can try that tonight. So, Amen. For me, it's a really interesting area because you're, you're always trying to improve yourself and your well-being. And the, the thing areas that I think about in terms of self-care are things like mental health and emotional well-being, as we've t- talked about, diet, sleep, exercise, and postural health, I guess. And those are probably the main sort of tenets for me of of like a healthy lifestyle. But are there any other areas that we should be focusing or thinking on outside of those areas? And also, is that something that you do, like do you review it every two months or three months or every year? Or when when do you check in on those different aspects of self-care in those areas? Yeah, I should just introduce Eamon, who's my brother, who's a, he's a musculoskeletal radiologist. He's a, you know, a wonderful radiologist and hence his interest in postural health as well, which are, <laughs> I'm now very conscious of my own posture. Um, but I think that's a really good question. What are your thoughts, Sean? I, I look, I think they're the most important ones. The only other thing, I guess, and probably reflects my background is screening. So just making sure that you are keeping up with all of the, you know, the screening stuff that we should be doing. So, you know, health checkups, make sure you're, you're doing, checking your blood pressure now and again. I realised, 
I think when I was about 30, I realised I hadn't had my blood pressure taken in 10 years. And I went, oh, yeah, actually, I probably should have that done every now and again. Um, so just, you know, the things that we would, you know, recommend for, for the general population. Um, I've got one to add. I look after a lot of older people. And one of the things I find with older people is that they, as you get older and there is a tendency for some people for your life to sort of shrink down a little bit in terms of how much you get out and talk to people and engage with people. You know, we often talk to older people about what helps stave off dementia and keep good health in, in, as you age. And I really strongly feel that going out and meeting other people, particularly people that you're not familiar with, is really good as an activity for an older person. So I sort of really try and encourage uh, older patients to try and take the challenge of being involved in a group or some kind of activity that forces them to interact with other people. I think that's something that makes a massive difference in, in older people's lives because it stops that contraction. It stops them losing their confidence for going out in the world and talking to people and, and doing things. I think there's something very powerful about having a conversation with someone you don't know in terms of what it makes you do cognitively. It's really good for, for warding off sort of some of the degeneration of dementia? Yeah, they've, they've actually shown, um, studies have shown that there is evidence to support that. Particularly, it seems to be for service organisations. And there's something, I believe, about serving other people in addition to what you're talking about, about meeting uh, new people. So, I mean, we're lucky in our job. If you speak to just about every other person I know, <coughs> Uh, particularly the lawyers, um, they hate their job. And it's because the, the sort, what they're doing, it, it's an antagonistic interaction most of the time. Whereas what we do is just we get paid to help people and have generally positive interactions. And so particularly after you know, we retire and, and our patients retire, um, I try and encourage them to think, okay, well, now what organisation are getting get involved in? It's not that you retire at 65 and go drink pina coladas in Broome for the rest of your life. Um, you know, actually have a think about it and, and think how can you continue to give to other people and stay involved and have a reason to get up out of bed and, you know, and go meet with people and do stuff. We should really mention one of our favourite organisations. It's called the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a wonderful member-based organisation uh, for GPs to connect with each other and just do things like examine and contribute yeah. and you know influence the lives and careers of your peers. So we do a lot as GPs in serving people, but I think, I, I mean, I, I know both of us have had a very similar journey of, of doing things just in the College of GPs just because it's been a, a wonderful experience and you yeah. know, I would thoroughly recommend that to any uh, early career GPs in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, just to answer the rest of your question, I think, it, you know, the regularity of when you check is depends on the person. I, I would encourage doing it regularly to habitualise because habitualisation, it's not easy. It takes time and it takes encouragement and reinforcement and I find a lot of a GP's job is, Christina said, it's motivational. You know, what's going to make someone change and, and continue to change? So that's my advice. I do think that check-in, though, is important because it's easy to say these things and uh, the patient walks away and kind of forgets about it a week later. So that kind of reinforcing activity every once in a while can be really helpful. And I think encouraging our patients to kind of set smart goals around it and even um, empower them to start thinking about 
what are some changes they can make and and what is the time frame that it would be good to check back in and and see what a difference it's made you know a lot of these things actually take time and when things take time motivation can waver so it is important to to check in and to to come back to it every once in a while yeah so i was thinking about the doctor's welfare and health so in britain what happened was in consultation with the nhs england the rcgp and the bma they've set up a confidential service with specialist gps psychiatrists psychologists wherein you can confidentially call them up saying that you've got this problem you can have telehealth or face to face consultation is there something similar in australia if not is it something that we should be doing and then the rcgp website can have a link which says listen in confidence if you have a problem you can go and visit these kind of gps or specialist yeah. services there there is uh it's i don't think it's uh, quite as structured as in the uk um it's called the doctors health advisory service uh and they have on call gps uh, one of the gps in our practice is on that service and they man the phone um for a week at a time uh and they will squeeze in usually they do it face to face in the metro area uh and they will squeeze patient you know they'll do a, a phone consult and then squeeze the patient in usually the next day um before they're consulting and and see the uh see the patient face to face there's a psychiatrist who is attached to that service and obviously very well respected very good psychiatrist um but there's an occupational health physician who's also attached and uh, and of course yeah there's the college um gp support program okay. um that's available that that's the employee assistance program yeah so that's a counseling service um that's available i think you get four free sessions as part of your college membership i know i think that that comes the emergency aspect of it i mean the the other message is it's really important for doctors to find their own gp yeah. someone who's local and you know accessible and um because a helpline thinks is a wonderful resource in a crisis but invariably it points to the fact that people have longer term needs um and you're never going to meet those longer term needs with that sort of a patch service you need to prioritize looking after things uh on a more long term basis and and if you're after if you don't have a gp yourself this service will put you in touch with a respected local gp within your area okay. um so it is and it's a good service they screen the gps that they put on that list quite well any other questions i'm just wondering with all this covid stuff that's going on at the moment a lot of us are using telehealth and i don't know about tim um but I know Sean's been attending a lot of Zoom meetings. How do you structure <laughs> some time between all of these Zoom meetings as well as you know trying to structure a day-to-day life? Yeah, I find the digital aspect of COVID really challenging to be honest and I really don't think I've got it right. I I find it very hard to sort of meaningfully engage over Zoom. I I I've taken doing a lot of teaching and tutorials over Zoom for my registrars just because it's easier to bring everyone together at the same time. What I try and do is just not assume that I can go straight from a Zoom meeting straight into consulting and you know in and out all, all the time because it's it's really exhausting. I think the fatigue you experience on on teleconferencing has been really well sort of highlighted and documented throughout uh COVID. So, you know, just recognizing telehealth is not downtime, really really exhausting time basically. It's like doing an exam. I mean, the board meeting is an eight-hour Zoom conference, and by the end of it, you do you feel like you've done an eight-hour exam. But I would also say that it saved a hell of a lot of travel. Mm. What used to be two and a bit days out of my life 
is now I wake up in the morning, I you know don't get out of my Ugg boots, I sit in front of a screen, uh, I do my eight-hour meeting, concentrate full on, and then because of the time difference, I'm finished by 2.30. And I can go for a run and do my self-care and instead of having to sit in an airport and wait around and so forth. So it does have some positives. Well, we've toxically loaded you with uh, Zoom tonight, Christina. <laughs> Any comments? Oh, well, look, I think there are definitely pros and cons, but um, something that I've learned is just needing to say no every once in a while. And I think the one thing with Zoom is it does make you so much more available and meetings that you previously couldn't have attended because it clashed with something or there was travel involved, all of a sudden you can attend because all you need to do is, you know, open up your laptop screen and there you are. So it, it makes you significantly more available and the tendency for a lot of us is to then automatically say yes to things and I think just remembering that yeah we're only one person we can only fit so much in and it is important to say no sometimes and and just work out where our priorities are there's someone said to me um and I wish I could remember who um gave me this but They said, you've got to remember that not all the balls you're trying to juggle are glass um, and you've got to work out which ones are glass and which ones are plastic. Which balls can you safely let drop at the moment right now and which ones do you really need to keep up in the air? And and that changes all the time, you know. We want to think that family, you know, is always glass, but there are times when family is actually the plastic and, you know, other stuff does come before that but then there are plenty of times when the family stuff is is the glass and we need to let some of those other things drop or the self-care is the glass and we need to let that meeting drop because we need to prioritize something else at the moment yeah look on that note i should really acknowledge my very plastic family who are beautiful wonderful people <laughs> and put up with a heck of a lot and i know yeah, yeah, same. your family is yeah. you're wonderfully invested in your family sean um, likewise, Christina, but um, I, I, I know my kids actually sometimes listen to the podcast. It's amazing to think that an 11-year-old is listening to uh, phototherapy for eczema. Um, but, yeah, they sacrifice, they've sacrificed they a lot do. for us, haven't they? The, um, it, Tim, your kids are good. I actually did a shout-out to my son and his footy team in the concussion episode, and he still wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> You've got to stop being so lame, <laughs> Yeah, that's... Cringe actually was the word he used. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we might tie up there. I really do thank the audience for coming in tonight. Thank you for your questions. Thank you to the team again. Um, yeah, and awesome. thanks for Christina tuning in over Zoom and being part of this. We're actually really hoping to do more events like this in the coming year. So, you, you know, you'll hear from us hopefully on the podcast. Thank you to everyone involved with the Good GP and have a good night. Thanks.